Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Barbara Segarra-Vasquez, Dean at the University of Puerto Rico Medical Sciences Campus. In addition to her work as Dean, Barbara focuses on patient advocacy following her diagnosis of breast cancer in 2003. She tells me that she manages to achieve as much as she does because she only needs five hours of sleep per night. An accomplished scientist and a compassionate and generous patient advocate, I'm proud to have interviewed Barbara Sagara Vasquez. You're very, very welcome to the show, Barbara. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you today. I want to start with your story as you recounted it in another place, which was the story of having the diagnosis of breast cancer. How did that happen and when did that happen? Well, first, thank you for having me in your program. I was diagnosed in on December 2003. I was 42 at the time, a mother of a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. I didn't have any close family member at the time who had had any diagnosis of cancer. So it was kind of new for me. And especially, you know, breast cancer at 42 is still considered young. And I didn't have any close family member with breast cancer. So I didn't suspect that could happen to me. So when I, I had a, mam- a mammogram, a mammography like six months before, and it was all clear. And then in, like in October at that year, I started feeling a lump on my left breast. And I said, well, I had a mammogram six months ago. It could not be anything. So I waited a few weeks, but then the lump didn't go away. So then I got a referral to repeat the mammography. And then it came out that it was a suspicious mass and that I should see a surgeon. So I work at a medical sciences campus. So somebody referred me to a surgeon, very well experienced. And I went there, but I was panicking because nobody wants to deal with a diagnosis like that. So I go to this and he's very recognized in in Puerto Rico where I live. But this guy didn't even look at my face. He felt the lump and he said, okay, we're going to schedule you for surgery on December. I don't remember what day. And I'm there sitting there and I say, but is this cancer? And then he says, yeah, those microcarcification usually is cancer, but we'll deal. I'll know more when I give you surgery. I'll see you in two weeks. And I'm like, no, you're not, because I needed somebody to really sit with me and explain what was happening. So the diagnosis was very frightening. And at the time, I just thought about my kids. You know, I'm a mother above everything, especially when you have young children. So I was thinking, you know, you usually think as cancer as a uh, death sentence. Thank God we have so many science uh, going on and, and good treatments. But at the time when you're a patient, that's what you listen to. So after that surgeon, I went to another one and it was kind of a difference, uh, a very big difference because this guy sat with me and he said, breast cancer is treatable. We're going to, I want to find out what is, what type it is how far we are, and then make decisions on what should be. If we do uh, surgery first, if we do treatment first, we're going to know more if I do a biopsy. So he did a biopsy and he scheduled for a lumpectomy. I, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, invasive ductal carcinoma, stage 2B, which required lumpectomy. And then I received six months of chemotherapy 
and then 34 sessions of radiation therapy. And then I was completely healthy until 2017, where I got a recurrence on the same breast, and then I had a mastectomy. But we can talk about that later if you want. First of all, I'm pleased that the diagnosis was made and that you had the appropriate treatment. We're so thrilled that that happened in that way. But the concerning thing here was the first experience you had with what was presumably a very eminent person, an eminent surgeon, and that even though he was very eminent, that you did not feel comfortable. And this is a very common story we hear from a lot of our guests and from many patients. Tell me a little bit more about that. What made you so uncomfortable with that? I think every patient is different and people look for different things. But I think minimum, you have to, especially with a diagnosis like cancer, you have to have take the time to talk to the patient, to explore their feelings. From that first day, it's very difficult to retain all the information. So they can tell you, you know, you have this, this is the treatment. And when you get home, you don't even, the only thing you're thinking about is that you had cancer. So I think there has to be more time. I'm privileged that I have a, a science background, I'm well-spoken. I was treated in Puerto Rico where everybody speaks Spanish. So language was not a barrier. I was able, able to ask the, the appropriate questions but that is not the same with, with people, for example, Hispanic living in the United States, where English, uh, not many physicians speak Spanish, and then they go for a diagnosis and they have a translator, but you're there trying to figure out what is happening to you with somebody translating that you're not sure they're telling you what it is. So for me, it was very important. And every time I, ha- I talk to different patients, because after I was diagnosed they call me and I try to tell them, you know, my experience and how it's different for everyone, but they have to really ask the questions and feel comfortable. I have other friends or patients who were treated with this surgeon and they're happy with him. But for me, I needed answers. I needed someone to look at me to my face and really tell me um, what to expect. Maybe somebody else will just follows and that's okay. But for me, that was very important. That's really interesting because what you're saying is that technically this person was excellent. He came very highly recommended. Technically, he had everything that you needed. There was no language barrier. There was no cultural barrier. And yet there was a mismatch between you and your treating surgeon in the sense that he didn't take the time to look at you and to see you as a person. That I think is a really important lesson for all of us in that no matter how technically superb you are, you really need to see the person in the context of the life that they're bringing to you. Yeah. And that's what I tell my, you know, when I talk to patients, you have to feel comfortable. If you don't dare to ask a question to your surgeon or your oncologist or your radiation therapist, then you should not be with them. You know, I I sit there, I make my little notes. I had this second surgeon that I found, he's my friend now. And when I had the, the recurrence, the recurrence, I went to his office. He sat with me. He called the dermatologist. He called for all the testing. He did the second surgery with another plastic surgeon. And he has been always there for me as the same of the oncologist. After my surgery, I got with this amazing oncologist that every time I, the first time I went to him, he explained what were the treatment, what was the life expectancy. 
but he was giving me hope in terms that, you know, he said, when I started my practice, maybe patients that I saw will last five years are now 10, 15, 20 years into it. Science is developing. So he always had that time to sit with me and talk to me. And I saw him for 17 years. Sadly, he passed away in May. And for me, it was devastating. He was a family member for 17 years, seeing him every six months. So for me, you develop that relation. And we talk about kids and we talk about research and we talk about everything because he was a friend. And that's what, you know, when you started in this, start in this cancer journey is for the rest of your life. And you have to have that kind of people where you feel comfortable and you can uh, tell them what you're feeling and negotiate. Well, if he's going to give me, he started with even some treatment. I said, mm, I think I read about this, what you think. So I feel comfortable that I can do that. Well, sadly, he passed away. I found a new uh, oncologist, very uh, science forward and, and very, I feel very comfortable with him as well. Yeah, I'm very sorry that you lost that person. Uh, he sounds he sounds like a treasure, to be honest with you. There was a difference between that surgeon and the one you saw before, and possibly the one that you'll see the next time. And there's a very important perspective that you have as a patient. The perspective of what is it that makes us give our life to somebody else. Many people who are listening to this will be thinking they'd like to have a career in oncology, or they might want to be a family doctor or whatever. What would be your one piece of advice, what would make them the better of the between the technician and the person who really ends up with the patient? I would say, uh, remember that you're dealing with humans, that we have feelings, that it might be their career in oncology and being used to diagnose after diagnose, but every patient is a new patient. And you have to sit back and maybe take time to explore their feelings, explain what they need, perhaps give them time for a second appointment to explain more. Because as I said before, usually that first time that you hear the news, you kind of get all blocked. You don't know what they said or how they said it, or what was I supposed to do? My husband was very good at taking notes. So when we got home, he would say, oh, he told us this, he told us that. But I, I always tell patients, you know, take time or tell the, the physician, they have to t give them time to absorb the news and then have time to then say, okay, now I understand that this is what I have. What is the next step? And that makes a difference. And as you say, as patients, we are trusting. I think the most important word I describe is trust because they, for the surgery, they put you asleep and you're there with your surgeon. Your life is literally in their hands. And you have to trust them and you have to, you know, I see through them and I've been blessed because I, I called them when I was in treatment, my dream team. And years ago, United States has this, had this basketball team and they called themselves the dream team. So when I was in my treatment in 2003 and in 2004, I, I called them my dream team. And actually when I finished my uh, last uh, radiation therapy, I did a dinner and I invited my surgeon, my oncologist, my radiation therapist, and their wives or husbands. And we did a dinner just with family to give them thank you. And I actually gave them a book. It's a book about a surgeon and he talks about exceptional patients. And they, when you're diagnosed with cancer, they give you all sorts of books. 
But this one was different because it was, it will give you hope. And it was this surgeon that he says he used to treat patients and he will say, okay, yeah, you have uh, pancreatic cancer. Well, six months is your diagnosis. And then, and then he started to see these exceptional patients where then follow the rules of dying in three months or six months. And so he started studying those patients and he realized that these were different and their, their attitude was different. And even as they respond to treatment was different because of the set of mind and, and, and being hopeful and taking away all this terror about it and dealing with it. So I think, and, and if I remember the name later, I'll tell you, but it was of the hundreds of books that they, I, people gave me when I was diagnosed. That was, so I, I wanted to, to give it to my physicians and they all had the book. And I just say thank you. And they're friends. You know, I, I consider them my family. And I, I was blessed because they were a team. They, and even though it wasn't in the same place, you know, there's not now that we have more cancer centers here in the island. But I, I was treated in the hospital. The most of my physicians were there in that hospital. But some people have different places and don't talk to each other. And it's important because they all make decisions in common, you know, let's do the chemo first, let's do surgery first, and then chemo, and then radiation, and they all talk to each other for the benefit of the patient. And that that is something very, very important as well. I imagine from the clinician's point of view that it was a joy having you as a patient. You have to remember that they went into the profession to serve you, and to have somebody who's so responsive to the care must have been a fantastic experience. I want to go still back a little bit and ask you, was there anything apart from attitude and ability to communicate that differentiated one surgeon from another? Also, it's experience. And, and, and this other surgeon was very knowledgeable and had a lot of experience as well. So it wasn't going blindfolded to any surgeon. I did my research in terms of that. But what I liked the most about him was the ability to listen, the ability to give me alternative, the ability, most of all, to give me hope. Because he didn't say, um, you're going to die of cancer. He said, and he didn't say, I'm going to cure you from cancer. He said, the cancer is treatable and we're going to do the best we can. And we're going to find the best options for you. And that gives you hope. And he wasn't lying. He wasn't saying, giving me false hope. He was saying, let's deal one thing at a time. And that for me was great. And he was looking at me and he was feeling what I felt. And he hugs. Well, now with the pandemic, I imagine the hugs have been going away. But I, every time I see him, I give him a hug or he gives me a hug back. And we have friends on Facebook. So we every time I have a cancer anniversary, I am grateful to him. And I tell you know my friends on Facebook that I have this great guy who helped me save my life, not once, but twice. So it's, it's that he's, he's human and he's sensible and he can feel what his patients are feeling and get involved and give them the time. And his office is all, he's such a good surgeon that his office is always full. But when he's with you, he's with you. He doesn't see that he has to rush with you because his office is full. He stays with you until he, you, he feels that you made all the questions that you wanted and then goes to the next one. So I think it's that human feeling that, and he has been a surgeon for more than 30 years. 
and it doesn't go away. People, uh, you talk to other patients and we all, we have, he has a fan club. We all adore him and he's our idol. So it's very, um, I'm blessed to have him as my surgeon. What a wonderful thing to say. In addition to that, did he, did he have a very nice office? Did he have sort of what you would regard almost like a hotel? Actually not. It was a, it was a simple office, a lot of chairs in the waiting room with a small waiting room two um, exam rooms, and that's it. It was in a hospital setting, but it wasn't anything fancy. Or my sir, plastic surgeon, he's a plastic surgeon. His office is beautiful, but he's the best human being as well. So it wasn't the office that I was looking for. I was looking for that human being that can really assure me uh, what was good for me at the time. And it changed. And it's probably what I tell patients, you know, what we know today is different of what we knew 17 years ago when I was diagnosed and maybe what we will know in five years from now. And that's the beauty of staying alive because we keep getting new advances and things that did not exist before, or maybe even giving less than when they used to give you everything at the same time because that was the best option at the time. And we cannot feel bad, oh, they gave me all this treatment because that was appropriate for the time. So we have to be grateful for that and hang in there for uh, many years and the science. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Science is advancing rapidly. And what uh, we are able to offer patients now is so different from what we were able to offer patients 20 years ago. So you're right. There is a good reason for hope in terms of uh, whatever, whatever illness you have. And we're hearing this story repeatedly. What happened in your case after that, tell us a little bit about your journey after you were diagnosed uh, the first and then the second time. When actually, when I received the the diagnosis and the grade, had the audiologist who did the biopsy, I asked her the first that uh, and uh, during the biopsy, do you think this is malignant? And she said, well, let's wait for the results. And I looked at her, and, and we just met that time. And I said, can what do you think? And she says, well, what I'm seeing, I don't think it'll come back benign. And this woman is the same. This is another good friend of mine. And when I was crying with her at the office, then she had a, a box of uh, tissue paper for her and her patient because she cried with all her patients. Her name is Eva Cruz and she's adorable. I was sitting there and I said, there, there might be a purpose. You know, I'm very, I was a teacher. I'm a professor at the university for 32 years. So I was, I don't know how many years of being a professor by the time I was diagnosed, maybe 20. And I knew, I said, well, maybe because I have these skills of teaching, I might be able to help other people and use my skills for the best. And if God wants me to go through this, I will have to really pay back. And I always, since then, I say I have to give back and service what I have in health. And I was able to see my two boys graduate of uh, a mechanical engineer, both of them. They were 10 and 14, and now they're 31 and 27. Great accomplished uh, young adults. They both work in Orlando in a great aerospatial company. And I was able to see that. So for me, I have been more than blessed with health to see that, that as a mother, I still want to be a grandma. So that's why I have to be, and they're not even married. So I'm going to have to be around for a long time. But then, you know, when I finished, I knew I needed to do something to help. Because I was always very active. I'm not shy. So I was in the parents and teacher association at the school. I was the president. We have a local association for medical technologists. I got to be the president there. So I'm always very active and doing things. 
but I was never actually helping, helping other people. So this was my chance. And I talked to a lot of people. Actually, today, a cousin, a second cousin of my husband called me because she was diagnosed three months ago and she wanted, she had some doubts. And I sat with her for an hour on the phone explaining different things. I don't, I take time, uh, as much time as I need if somebody needs to talk to me. Because I think when you're diagnosed, you have so many questions and somebody, a surgeon or, or a nurse can tell you. But if you hear it from a patient, somebody who went through it, you know, somebody, you can have a doctor say, well, the chemo won't be that bad, but then they didn't go through it. So somebody asked me and I had six months of chemotherapy. I can tell them what it could, and it's not as bad as we imagine it. So when you talk to somebody that went through it, it really gives you ease. So that's what I want to give back. So I started doing that on an individual basis. And then in Puerto Rico, we have a local affiliate for Susan G. Komen, the Breast Cancer Foundation. And I started volunteering there first in the education committee. So I started uh, going out to talk about breast cancer, et cetera. Then I was part of the board and I was president for four years. We developed training for breast cancer survivors. We did conference for providers and I was very active there. But then during that time in 2012, I heard about a conference for AACR uh, has a, a meeting and they have a session for advocates and they call scientific survivorship group. And what they do in every meeting, they invite and pay for at least 25 or 30 advocates of different cancers to come to this meeting and learn more about the science. And I was, wow, that is cool. And then they call themselves research advocates. And it's having uh, the advocates participate in all the cycle of research from the idea to the dissemination and having opportunities to change, like, for example, and Department of Defense that has grants for breast cancer, we have, they have patients sitting at the table and making decisions of the grant. So when we sit at that table, we say, well, this sounds fantastic, but how is it going to change the patient? Or what is, how is it going to improve their quality of life? So I learned about being a research advocate. And I had my science advocate um, background because I'm a medical technologist, a, a laboratory scientist. So I had a little bit of a science background. So that helped me learn more about that and started getting scholarships to attend different meetings in the United States, like the uh, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium had another group. Alamo Foundation had invite also advocates. So I got a scholarship to do that also. So I started attending and this kind of everything happened in 2012 and it was like an eye opening. So since then, I started participating in there as a research advocate. Research advocacy is is a a big issue because clearly we need to have as many people involved in clinical trials as is humanly possible and the variety of people who are likely to be using those treatments. What has been your experience of that area in terms of the differences, the inequity of involvement of people in clinical trials? That has been my main goal, if you may, as a research advocate, because that, especially in the United States, Hispanics represent 17% of the population. And it's known to be that it's going to be the biggest minority by 2025. And when you look at the numbers, some clinical trials don't even have 1% of Hispanic participating. And so 
that's one in terms of, of having them. I have kind of a mission to change that and change it in many ways in terms that for that to happen, it's not only a matter of inviting Hispanic to participate. We have to have more Latinos or Hispanic researchers receiving grants. We have to have minority institutions, minority serving institutions having that opportunity to receive grants because sometimes these, I can talk about breast cancer because that's where I have been focusing on. And um, when you have maybe a different university, maybe to say something, University of Puerto Rico competing with Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson, or all these huge cancer centers. So even if we have good science and you have a slate in terms of infrastructure and all the things, then all these institutions are usually on the top and their researchers are the one receiving the grants. So if we don't start to have more diversity on that side, it's like a cycle because those researchers are the ones who are invited to review other grants. So they're not invited to review grants because they don't get the grants. So they are they do not participate in them. Then it, it literature says that patients usually like to see people like them. So if it's in the community and they have a researcher from their community, it's more likely that they're going to trust them, like we were talking later about trust, that they're going to feel more comfortable. And these researchers from those communities know their people, know their needs, know that I cannot do a research with Hispanics in this area where they all work in industries and work for double shift and pretend for them to come for a clinical trial in the middle of the day, because it's not going to happen. So from the design, you have to be conscious of that kind of population. And if you're not a researcher with that background, please get on your team people from those backgrounds that can help you assort these kind of details that will help you recruit that people. And it happens with other minorities like African-Americans and other things in the United States because it's a lack of understanding of that population. And then you make the design and said, yeah, I'm going to recruit 200 Hispanics. How? You didn't explain how, and they don't take points away for that because that's part of the methodology. So the science is wonderful. And then by the way, I'm going to recruit 200 Latinos or Hispanic. How? Tell me how. But nobody asks how. And then a year into it says, mm, we tried, but they didn't come. We just put a flyer on Facebook and nobody attended. Well, maybe they don't have Facebook. Maybe they are working. So since the beginning, if you have this kind of people of, of the community or part of your team getting it, it will really make a difference. So I'm sitting at the table with SWOG Cancer Network. You know, SWOG is a, uh, it's an NCI funded uh, organization that has more than 4,000 researchers and they have done more than uh, 1,400 trials. And I'm part of their patient advocates. And I'm and when they have things in Spanish, I participate or I question every time they're going to have something. Is it going to be available in Spanish? Or there was a, a study recently that I'm sitting on and they were going to, they asked me, what if we don't find the uh, some, somebody in, uh, to talk Spanish, what do you think about a translator? And I said, it won't be the same because when you have a translator, you're having a, another barrier for that person and won't be able to understand and will question what is the translator or the researcher saying. So that will be another barrier. 
that all makes a lot of sense. And you think about it in terms of the African-American population, or you think about the Aboriginal population here in Australia, the very same kind of issues, ethnic minorities generally. Have you seen progress? Have you seen that in the years that you've been involved in this, that we are getting much more engagement of the ethnic minority groups in research? I think they're trying. And and in SWAG, for example, they develop uh, what they call community advocates, and we are addressing gaps for LGBTQ, African-American, Hispanics, metastatic, veterans. So they're trying to bring people from all these communities to sit at the table. And surprisingly, when you sit at the table, they really listen. And I think Hispanics tend to think that nobody's going to listen. I'm not going to get involved. And I can say they do listen. And I feel so privileged sitting at these tables and being able to say what I think or give them ideas. And they really take them and they ask more questions and they're very receptive. So the willingness is there. And if we have more people sitting at the table, because I'm only one, so we need more of me sitting at different tables, for the, to make a difference and people will listen. And part of my other mission is really get more ab- Hispanic advocates because for in breast cancer, it, you know, in terms of advocacy, they we have gone a long way for these last 25, 30 years that we have been talking about breast cancer and the movement is very strong. But when you look at ethnicity in this movement, there's a handful of us that are Hispanics. And there's a lot of people in the United States that speak Spanish, that are Hispanic, that could be bringing their voice. And perhaps it's because they think they won't be listened. So part of what I want to do also is encourage other Hispanics to get involved, talk to your uh, academic institution, see what you do, give an opinion about research, and they will listen. Barbara, where can people find you? Do you have a website? Do you have a a place where you have a public profile? I'm on Twitter at Barbara Segarra. And um, also my email is barbara.segarra at upr.edu. I don't have a website or anything because, you know, um, this advocacy is my passion, but it's like my part-time because full-time as a dean, I'm very, very busy. But I don't... I don't need to sleep more than five hours. So what I do at night, like I'm doing tonight, talking to you, even though it's morning at your end, this is not work for me. I enjoy talking. I enjoy making a difference. I enjoy paying back what I have in health. So for me, it's not work. So if I, if I retire sometime, then I will have website and other things. But for now, I'm on Twitter and also on my email. Barbara Segarra Vasquez your energy is unbelievable. You are extraordinarily compassionate. You're very generous and you are making a difference. You can be sure of that. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for your kind words and for the invitation. I enjoy it very much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.